0: Part seventeen of Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Chapter two. Simon. The allies continued to pay their assessments, but did not furnish men and ships according to allotment, since they were soon weary of military service, and had no need of war, but a great desire to till their land and live at their ease. The barbarians were gone, and did not harass them, so they neither manned their ships nor sent out soldiers. The rest of the Athenian generals tried to force them to do this, and by prosecuting delinquents and punishing them, rendered their empire burdensome and vexatious. But Simon took just the opposite course when he was general, and brought no compulsion to bear on a single Helene, but accepted money from those who did not wish to go out on service, and ships without crews, and so suffered the allies, caught with the bait of their own ease, to stay at home and become tillers of the soil, and unwarlike merchants instead of warriors, and all through their foolish love of comfort. On the other hand, he made great numbers of the Athenians man their ships, one crew relieving another, and imposed on them the toil of his expeditions, and so, in a little while, by means of the very wages which they got from the allies, made them lords of their own paymasters. For those who did no military service became used to fearing and flattering those who were continually voyaging, and forever under arms and training, and practicing, and so, before they knew it, they were tributary subjects instead of allies. And surely there was no one who humbled the great king himself, and reduced his haughty spirit more than Simon. For he did not let him go quietly away from Hellas, but followed right at his heels, as it were, and before the barbarians had come to a halt and taken breath, he sacked and overthrew here, or subverted and annexed to the Hellenes there, until Asia, from Ionia to Pamphylia, was entirely cleared of Persian arms. Learning that the generals of the king were lurking about Pamphylia with a great army and many ships, and wishing to make them afraid to enter at all the sea to the west of the Chilidonian Isles, he set sail from Snidus and Tropium with two hundred triremes. These vessels had been from the beginning very well constructed for speed and manoeuvring by Themistocles, but Simon now made them broader, and put bridges between their decks, in order that with their imorous hoplites they might be more effective in their onsets. Putting in at Phacillus, which was a Hellenic city, but refused to admit his armament or even abandoned the king's cause, he ravaged its territory and assaulted its walls. But the Chians, who formed part of his fleet, and were of old on friendly terms with the people of Phacillus, laboured to soften Simon's hostility, and at the same time, by shooting arrows over the walls with little documents attached, they conveyed messages of their success to the men of Phacillus. So finally Simon made friends with them on condition that they should pay ten talents, and join him in his expedition against the barbarians. Now Ephorus says that Tithrastes was commander of the royal fleet, and Ferundates of the infantry, but Callisthenes says that it was Ariomandes, the son of Gobrirus, who, as commander-in-chief of all the forces, lay at anchor with the fleet off the mouth of the Eurymedon, and that he was not at all eager to fight with the Hellenes, but was waiting for eighty Phoenician ships to sail up from Cyprus." Wishing to anticipate their arrival, Simon put out to sea, prepared to force the fighting if his enemy should decline an engagement. At first the enemy put into the river that they might not be forced to fight, but when the Athenians bore down on them there, they sailed out to meet them. They had six hundred ships, according to Phanademus, three hundred and fifty, according to Ephorus. Whatever the number, nothing was achieved by them on the water which was worthy of such a force, but they straightway put about and made for shore, where the foremost of them abandoned their ships and fled for refuge to the infantry, which was drawn up near by. Those who were overtaken were destroyed with their ships. Whereby also it is plain that the barbarian ships which went into action were very numerous indeed, since though many of course made their escape, and many were destroyed, still two hundred were captured by the Athenians. When the enemy's land forces marched threateningly down to the sea, Simon thought it a vast undertaking to force a landing, and lead his weary Hellenes against an unwearied and many times more numerous foe. But he saw that his men were exalted by the impetus and pride of their victory, and eager to come to close quarters with the barbarians. So he landed his hoplites, still hot, with the struggle of the sea-fight, and they advanced to the attack with shouts and on the run. The Persians stood firm and received the onset nobly, and a mighty battle ensued, wherein there fell brave men of Athens who were foremost in public office and eminent. But after a long struggle the Athenians routed the barbarians with slaughter, and then captured them in their camp, which was full of all sorts of treasure. But Simon, though like a powerful athlete he had brought down two contests in one day, and though he had surpassed the victory of Salamis with an infantry battle, and that of Plataea with a naval battle, still went on competing with his own victories. Hearing that the eighty Phoenician triremes which were too late for the battle had put in at Hydras, he sailed thither with all speed, while their commanders as yet knew nothing definite about the major force, but were still in distrustful suspense. For this reason they were all the more panic-stricken at his attack, and lost all their ships. Most of their crews were destroyed with the ships. This exploit so humbled the purpose of the king that he made the terms of that notorious peace, by which he was to keep away from the Hellenic sea-coast, as far as a horse could travel in a day, and was not to sail west of the Cianian and the Caledonian islands, with armoured ships of war. And yet Callisthenes denies that the barbarian made any such terms, but says he really acted as though he did through the fear which that victory inspired, and kept so far aloof from Hellas that Pericles with fifty, and Ephialtes with only thirty, ships, sailed beyond the Caledonian Isles without encountering any navy of the barbarians. But in the decrees collected by Craterus there is a copy of the treaty in its due place, as though it had actually been made. And they say that the Athenians also built the altar of peace to commemorate this event, and paid distinguished honors to Callius as their ambassador. By the sale of the captured spoils the people was enabled to meet various financial demands, and especially it constructed the southern wall of the Acropolis, with the generous resources obtained from that expedition. And it is said that, though the building of the long walls, called Legs, was completed afterwards, yet their first foundations, where the work was obstructed by swamps and marshes, were stayed up securely by Simon, who dumped vast quantities of rubble and heavy stones into the swamps, meeting the expenses himself. He was the first to beautify the city with the so-called liberal and elegant resorts which were so excessively popular a little later, by planting the market-place with plain trees, and by converting the academy from a waterless and arid spot into a well-watered grove, which he provided with clear running tracks and shady walks. Now there were certain Persians who would not abandon the Chersonese, but called in Thracians from the north to help them. Despising Simon, who had sailed out from Athens with only a few triremes, all told. But he sallied out against them with his four ships and captured their thirteen, drove out the Persians, overwhelmed the Thracians, and turned the whole Chercenese over to his city for settlement. And after this, when the Thacians were in revolt from Athens, he defeated them in a sea-fight, captured thirty-three of their ships, besieged and took their city, acquired their gold-mines on the opposite mainland for Athens, and took possession of the territory which the Thacians controlled there. From this base he had a good opportunity, as it was thought, to invade Macedonia and cut off a great part of it, and because he would not consent to do it, he was accused of having been bribed to this position by King Alexander, and was actually prosecuted, his enemies forming a coalition against him. In making his defense before his judges, he said he was no Proxenus of rich Ionians and Thessalians, as others were, to be courted and paid for their services, but rather of Lacedaemonians, whose temperate simplicity he lovingly imitated, counting no wealth above it, but embellishing the city with the wealth which he got from the enemy. In mentioning this famous trial, Stesimbrotus says that Alpenici came with a plea for Simon to the house of Pericles, since he was the most ardent accuser, and that he smiled and said, "'Too old, too old, Elpinici, to meddle with such business.' But at the trial he was very gentle with Simon, and took the floor only once in accusation of him, as though it were a mere formality. Well, then, Simon was acquitted at this trial, and during the remainder of his political career, when he was at home, he mastered and constrained the people in its onsets upon the nobles, and in its efforts to wrest all office and power to itself. But when he sailed away again on military service, the populace got completely beyond control." they confounded the established political order of things and the ancestral practices which they had formerly observed and under the lead of ephialtes they robbed the council of the areopagus of all but a few of the cases in its jurisdiction they made themselves masters of the courts of justice and plunged the city into unmitigated democracy pericles being now a man of power and espousing the cause of the populace and so when simon came back home and in his indignation at the insults heaped upon the reverend council, tried to recall again in its jurisdiction and to revive the aristocracy of the times of Cleisthenes, they banded together to denounce him, and tried to inflame the people against him, renewing the old slanders about his sister, and accusing him of being a Spartan sympathizer. It was to these calumnies that the famous and popular verses of Iopolis about Simon had reference. He was not base, but fond of wine and full of sloth, and oft he did sleep in Lacedaemon, far from home, and leave his Elpinici sleeping all alone. But if, though full of sloth and given to tippling, he yet took so many cities and won so many victories, it is clear that had he been sober and mindful of his business, no Helene, either before or after him, would have suppressed his exploits. It is true, indeed, that he was, from the first, a Philo-Laconian. He actually named one of his twin sons Lacedaemonius, and the other Elias, the sons whom a woman of Cleotor bore him, as Stesimbrotus relates, wherefore Pericles often reproached them with their maternal lineage. But Diodorus, the topographer, says that these, as well as the third of Simon's sons, Thessalus, were born of Isodice, the daughter of Europtolemus, the son of Megacles, and he was looked upon with favour by the Lacedaemonians, who soon were at enmity with Themistocles, and therefore preferred that Simon, young as he was, should have the more weight and power in Athens. The Athenians were glad to see this at first, since they reaped no slight advantage from the goodwill which the Spartans showed him. While their empire was fast growing, and they were busy making alliances, they were not displeased that honour and favour should be shown to Simon. He was the foremost Hellenic statesman, dealing gently with the allies, and acceptably with the Lacedaemonians. But afterwards, when they became more powerful, and saw that Simon was strongly attached to the Spartans, they were displeased thereat. For on every occasion he was prone to exalt Lacedaemon to the Athenians, especially when he had occasion to chide or incite them. Then, as Desimbrotus tells us, he would say, "'But the Lacedaemonians are not of such a sort.' In this way he awakened the envy and hatred of his fellow-citizens." At any rate, the strongest charge against him rose as follows. The son of Zeuxidimus was in the fourth year of his reign at Sparta. A greater earthquake than any before reported rent the land of the Lacedaemonians into many chasms, shook Tegetus so that sundry peaks were torn away, and demolished the entire city with the exception of five houses. The rest were thrown down by the earthquake. It is said that while the young men and youths were exercising together in the interior of the colonnade, just a little before the earthquake, a hare made its appearance, and the youths, all anointed as they were, in sport, dashed out and gave chase to it, but the young men remained behind, on whom the gymnasium fell, and all perished together. Their tomb, even down to the present day, they call Seismatius. Archidamus at once comprehended from the danger at hand that which was sure to follow, and as he saw the citizens trying to save the choicest valuables out of their houses, ordered the trumpet to give the signal of an enemy's attack, in order that they might flock to him at once under arms. This was all that saved Sparta at that crisis, for the helots hurriedly gathered from all the country round about, with intent to dispatch the surviving Spartans. But finding them arrayed in arms, they withdrew to their cities and waged open war, persuading many Periochi also so to do. The Messenians besides, joined in this attack upon the Spartans accordingly the Lacedaemonians sent Pericleatus to Athens with request for aid, and Aristophanes introduces him into a comedy as sitting at the altars, pale of face, in a purple cloak, soliciting an army. But Ephialtus opposed the project, and besought the Athenians not to succour nor restore a city which was their rival, but to let haughty Sparta lie to be trodden under foot of men. Whereupon, As Critias says, Simon made his country's increase of less account than Sparta's interest, and persuaded the people to go forth to her aid with many hoplites. And Ion actually mentions the phrase by which, more than by anything else, Simon prevailed upon the Athenians, exhorting them not to suffer Hellas to be crippled, nor their city to be robbed of its yoke-fellow. After he had given aid to the Lacedaemonians, he was going back home with his forces through the Isthmus of Corinth, "'when Locartus upbraided him for having introduced his army "'before he had conferred with the citizens. "'People who knock at doors,' said he, "'do not go in before the owner bids them.' "'To which Simon replied, "'And yet you Corinthians, O Locartus, "'did not so much as knock at the gates of Cleonac and Megara, "'but hewed them down and forced your way in under arms, "'demanding that everything be opened up to the stronger.' "'Such was his boldness of speech to the Corinthian in an emergency, "'and he passed on through with his forces.' Once more the Lacedaemonians summoned the Athenians to come to their aid against the Messianians and Helots in Ithome, and the Athenians went, but their dashing boldness awakened fear, and they were singled out from all the allies and sent off as dangerous conspirators. They came back home in a rage, and at once took open measures of hostility against the Laconizers, and above all against Simon. Laying hold of a trifling pretext, they ostracized him for ten years that was the period decreed in all cases of ostracism. It was during this period that the Lacedaemonians, after freeing the Delphians from the Phocians, encamped at Tanagra on their march back home. Here the Athenians confronted them, bent on fighting their issue out, and here Simon came in arms to join his own Aeneid tribe, eager to share with his fellow citizens in repelling the Lacedaemonians. But the council of the five hundred learned of this and was filled with fear, since Simon's foes accused him of wishing to throw the ranks into confusion, and then lead the Lacedaemonians in an attack upon the city. So they forbade the generals to receive the man. As he went away, he besought Euthypus of Anaphystis and his other comrades, all who were specially charged with Laconizing, to fight sturdily against the enemy, and by their deeds of valor to dissipate the charge which their countrymen laid at their door. They took his armor and set it in the midst of their company, supported one another ardently in the fight, and fell, to the number of one hundred, leaving behind them among the Athenians a great and yearning sense of their loss, and sorrow for the unjust charges made against them. For this reason the Athenians did not long abide by their displeasure against Simon, partly because, as was natural, they remembered his benefits, and partly because the turn of events favoured his cause. For they were defeated at Tanagra in a great battle, and expected that in the following springtime an armed force of Peloponnesians would come against them, and so they recalled Simon from his exile. The decree which provided for his return was formally proposed by Pericles. To such a degree in those days were dissensions based on political differences of opinion, while personal feelings were moderate, and easily recalled into conformity with the public weal. Even ambition, that master passion, paid deference to the country's welfare well then as soon as simon returned from exile he stopped the war and reconciled the rival cities after peace was made since he saw that the athenians were unable to keep quiet but wished to be on the move and to wax great by means of military expeditions also because he wished that they should not exasperate the hellenes generally nor by hovering around the islands and the peloponnesus with a large fleet bring down upon the city charges of intestine war and initial complaints from the allies, he manned two hundred triremes. His design was to make another expedition with them against Egypt and Cyprus. He wished to keep the Athenians in constant training by their struggles with the barbarians, and to give them the legitimate benefits of importing into Hellas the wealth taken from their natural foes. All things were now ready, and the soldiery on the point of embarking, when Simon had a dream. He thought an angry bitch was baying at him, and that mingled with its baying it uttered a human voice saying, Go thy way, for a friend shalt thou be both to me and my puppies. The vision being hard of interpretation, Estephilus of Posidonia, an inspired man and in an intimate of Simon's, told him that it signified his death. He analyzed the vision thus A dog is a foe of the man at whom it bays. To a foe one cannot be a friend any better than by dying the mixture of speech indicates that the enemy is the Medi, for the army of the Medes is a mixture of Hellenes and barbarians. After this vision, when Simon had sacrificed to Dionysus, and the seer was cut up in the victim, swarms of ants took the blood as it congealed, brought it little by little to Simon, and enveloped his great toe therewith, he being unconscious of their work for some time. Just about at the time when he noticed what they were doing, the ministrant came and showed him the liver of his victim without a head. But since he could not get out of the expedition, he set sail, and after detailing sixty of his ships to go to Egypt, with the rest he made again for Cyprus. After defeating at sea the royal armament of Phoenician and Sicilian ships, he won over the cities around about, and then lay threatening the royal enterprise in Egypt, and not in any trifling fashion, nay, He had in mind the dissolution of the king's entire supremacy, and all the more because he learnt that the reputation and power of Themistocles were great among the barbarians, who had promised the king that, when the Hellenic war was set on foot, he would take command of it. At any rate, it is said that it was most of all due to Themistocles' despair of his Hellenic undertakings, since he could not eclipse the good fortune and valor of Simon, that he took his own life. But Simon, while he was projecting vast conflicts and holding his naval forces in the vicinity of Cyprus, sent men to the shrine of Amnion, to get oracular answer from the god to some secret question. No one knows what they were sent to ask, nor did the god vouchsafe them any response. But as soon as the inquirers drew nigh, he bade them depart, saying that Simon himself was already with him. On hearing this, the inquirers went down to the sea-coast, and when they reached the camp of the Hellenes, which was at that time on the confines of Egypt, they learned that Simon was dead, and on counting the days back to the utterance of the oracle, they found that it was their commander's death which had been darkly intimated, since he was already with the gods. He died while besieging Sitium, of sickness, as most say. But some say it was of a wound which he got while fighting the barbarians. As he was dying he bade those about him to sail away at once and to conceal his death and so it came to pass that neither the enemy nor the allies understood what had happened, and the force was brought back in safety under the command of Simon, as Phanodemus says, who had been dead for thirty days. After his death no further brilliant exploit against the barbarians was performed by any general of the Hellenes, who were swayed by demagogues and partisans of civil war, with none to hold a mediating hand between them, till they actually clashed together in war." This afforded the cause of the king a respite, but brought to pass an indescribable destruction of Hellenic power. It was not until long afterwards that Agassilius carried his arms into Asia and prosecuted a brief war against the king's generals along the sea-coast. And even he could perform no great and brilliant deeds, but was overwhelmed in his turn by a flood of Hellenic disorders and seditions, and swept away from a second empire. So he withdrew, leaving in the midst of allied and friendly cities the tax-gatherers of the Persians, not one of whose scribes, nay, nor so much as a horse, had been seen within four hundred furlongs of the sea, as long as Simon was general. That his remains were brought home to Attica, there is testimony in the funeral monuments to this day called Simonian. But the people of Sitium also pay honours to a certain tomb of Simon, as Nosocrates, the rhetorician says, because in a time of pestilence and famine the god enjoined upon them not to neglect simon but to revere and honour him as a superior being such was the greek leader end of simon